Many organizations struggle when it comes to communicating and realizing their business strategies. Many workers don't even understand the strategies in their own company. Welcome to the North Star with William Ulrich. Find out where your organization stands, what you might be doing right, and where you can improve. Now, here's your host, William Ulrich. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, William Ulrich. You're listening to the North Star. Feel free to contact me by email, LinkedIn, or at my website, tacticalstrategygroup.com. Today, we'll be discussing the circular economy with my guest, Walter R. Stahill. Walter has been influential in developing the field of sustainability. He's founder of the Product Life Institute, holder of two honorary doctorates, and a prize-winning author. His ideas led to the fields now known as the circular economy and the performance economy. He's authored multiple books, with his latest being The Circular Economy, A User's Guide. Walter was nominated for the Senior Research Fellow at École des Ponts Business School in Paris. You can contact him on LinkedIn or by email at wrstahill, that's W-R-S-T-A-H-E-L 2014 at gmail.com. I posted information on a couple of Walter's books and related reference material on my website's North Star radio page. So if you go to my website, you'll see that uh, this particular episode has some content references, including Walter's book. Walter is speaking to us today from Geneva, Switzerland. Welcome, Walter. I'm hoping you can- Good morning, Bill. Good morning. And and for uh, Walter, it's evening. So good evening, Walter. I'm hoping you can fill us in a little more on your background. I noticed uh, in your looking at your formal training that you started out originally in the field of architecture, if, if that's right. And what led you to work on sustainability in the circular economy? That's correct. And then I moved into uh, research on sustainable strategies and policies and then into risk management uh, research. But my one of my bosses called my activities uh, as an industrial analyst. Hmm. I think architecture fits into some of the things we're going to talk about today because we are talking about concepts of reuse and recycling and remanufacturing and things along those lines. Have you found it useful? Yes, uh, architecture is one of the professions where you learn to think in three dimensions. I think that's that's the big advantage. Three, even four dimensions, if you take time also into account. I'm going to have to keep that one in mind. I'm going to file that one away in the back of my mind. So let's talk about the circular economy. Can you tell us what exactly or how you define the circular economy? Well, there are different circular circularities. One is nature circularity by evolution. Another one is the circular society, very often non-monetary, that uses local resources as assets for reasons of scarcity, poverty, or conviction. And that comprises natural resources such as water and bioeconomy, cultural resources, human resources, uh, financial, uh, and manufactured capitals. And I'm mostly focusing on the manufactured capitals, in other words, on a circular industrial economy. So you talk about the notion of circularity. Can you give us a little more insight into that? 
Well, circularity in nature or in in uh, society basically means taking care of the your belongings or of your assets and uh, looking after them, caring after them. In other words, managing stocks, managing what you have. And of course, in nature, there is no waste. Nature, uh, everything is eaten by, by another uh, animal or, or uh, smaller things. And uh, so if you take that the other way around, then all waste is man-made because there is no waste in, man in nature. Hmm. Okay. So the circular economy is different from what you've defined or called the linear economy. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about what the linear economy is and, and its difference to the circular economy? The linear industrial economy optimizes all activities up to the point of sale. And then at the point of sale, the ownership and liability are passed to the buyer, which now becomes the owner-user. But the end of pipe, the, the end of life of a product or a building is no longer the liability or responsibility of the producer. A circular economy is not focused on production, but it's focused on use. The use of uh, objects and of materials and that its objective is to optimize the use of infrastructure, buildings, objects by maintaining the value and utility of objects or maintaining the value and purity of molecules and atoms over longer periods of time. Okay. One of the things that I, I think probably a number of listeners are familiar with or have heard about is the triple bottom line, where there's uh, both financial bottom line as well as social bottom line and environmental bottom line. Now, you talk about the performance economy. From what I read in your book, it looks like the performance economy deals with, with all aspects of that. Is, that. is that a fair statement? Well, the triple bottom line, I believe, was coined by my friend John Elkington in the mid-90s, and it corresponds basically to what in Europe we call sustainability. In other words, the economic, social, and human uh, or, or uh, environmental factors. Uh, the performance economy is circular business models. In other words, the producer or fleet manager retains ownership and internalizes the liability for the products and is not selling goods, but selling goods as a service or molecules as a service or even performance, pure performance, for example, pharmaceuticals. So the, in that sense, the performance economy is really exploiting the triple bottom line all aspects in the trying to make the best use of everything without creating losses or waste. We are seeing a shift in some industries. Uh, for example, there's more of a trend towards 
car sharing, leasing, uh, those types of things, where it seems like there's opportunities for more of this circularity to kick in. Is that, do you see some of those trends out there? Well, the performance economy is the most profitable and, and sustainable business model of the circular economy because it exploits sufficiency and efficiency strategies, uh, whereas the circular economy only you, uh, exploits uh, efficiency. And the performance economy is, from an economic point of view, in a long-term view, very profitable because by retaining the ownership of materials and objects for as long as possible, the, 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 the economic actor creates a corporate resource supply and he has no transaction or compliance costs as you have in manufacturing. The internalized liability you can reduce by intelligent systems design And uh, something that is not yet valued today, performance economy also preserves embodied resources. In other words, the energy, CO2 emissions and water that went into manufacturing from the, wine, from the mine to the point of sale are retained within the objects. And there, therefore, you don't have it's a contribution to sustainable development. It helps in water arid uh, regions and uh, it, it gives you resilience. It gives uh, a corporate resilience because if there is a shortage of any materials or any whatever you need uh, energy, then you use the, the resources that you own and you don't depend so much on other suppliers. So, so there's a motivation. I wanted to talk about motivation, so I'm glad you, you went down that path. The motivations, somebody might say, well, maybe the head of a corporation might say, well, this is all well and good and we certainly want to contribute to environmental and sustainability issues, but we have to really focus on our financial bottom line. But you talked about there's, there's financial benefits here. There's, there's benefits in terms of making the, the organizations, the corporations more resilient. So you see really there's motivations here well beyond just you know, being a good corporate citizen to the world. Oh, definitely. The circular economy is driven by economics, innovation, and competitiveness. The problem is that the uh, economic actors that are working in the linear industrial economy, they don't have the, the experience on the other side. So, for example, if we take remanufacturing, which is one of the key activities of maintaining objects, the value and utility of objects. Uh, remanufac remanufacturing, by the way, is something that was very well described in the US in the 1990s by Professor Robert Lund 
from MIT and Boston University, Reman is a strategy that has been used by the US Air Force and Navy for probably 50 years, if not more. It has been discovered in the 1990s by major industrial players such as Caterpillar for its diesel engines. And the main difference between manufacturing and remanufacturing is that the return on investment on a remanufacturing plant is five times the return on investment on a plant manufacturing the same components. That's so incredible. It is, if you are a chief financial officer, you should really look into remanufacturing. That's an incredible statistic that, that you bring up there. And, and I think people don't really realize that. And, and you, you, we talked earlier before the show about some of the things that are out there. One of the things you talked about is the resiliency and issues with the global supply chain that we've seen and just-in-time manufacturing, for example. Uh, so you see some of the ideas here being able to address some of the concerns with breakdowns in global supply chains and just-in-time manufacturing? Well, the thing is that the circular economy is part of a new trend of intelligent decentralization. In other words, it's the beginning of the end of globalization and international trade over long distances. Now there are other trends of intelligent decentralization. Think of additive manufacturing, the famous 3D print and robots, but there are also local energy production, photovoltaic, micro hydro and uh, waste to biogas, uh, wind energy, all these uh, energies are produced locally. So it's a decentralized production. You have crowd mapping, crowd finance, uh, microbreweries, urban farming. Normally people don't put this, they don't see that the link between, but all these activities are the part of the trend towards a intelligent decentralization. Mm. So I think we talked about what recently with the global pandemic, so you can see, and it still continues, the breakdowns in these, these supply chains with, your, with this localization and this trend that's going on, uh, we're talking about still be able, being able to function as an organization and deliver products to market uh, in spite of the fact that uh, you know, maybe some of these global supply chains might break down but you focused, uh, but organizations that focus more locally on things uh, will have that, that greater resiliency to those types of issues. Well, if you take remanufacturing, it's one strategy that allows politicians to re-industrialize regions because the, the stock of objects, of used objects are everywhere. And so you can remanufacture them wherever they are. And, but then also the, the, the robot, basically, why did we go into globalized production and global supply chains? Because we were looking for the cheapest labor cost. 
And with robotized manufacturing industry 4.0, labor is insignificant. So therefore now the, the key cost and risk factor is transport over longer distances. And if we use local robots, wherever our products are needed or sold, then we only transport uh, data through the internet or fiberglass, whatever, and networks, but we no longer have physical transport. You no longer have the big container vessels that can get stuck in a storm or in the Suez Canal, whatever. So we become less dependent on the supply chains because we basically create our own local production. Yeah, that's great. And in fact, I think that's a, there's a huge lesson out there uh, to a lot of organizations that probably may not be looking at this, but suddenly are now facing a situation uh, where they are actually stuck with, uh, you know, not having the supplies that they need, that they've got ships at sea or, they, or the ships aren't getting sent. And I do want to talk more about that uh, reclamation types of issues uh, after our, our first break. So let's go ahead and uh, take that. You're listening to The North Star. I'm William Ulrich. We're discussing the circular economy with my guest, Walter Stahill. His latest book is called Circular Economy, A User's Guide. You can contact him on LinkedIn or by email. We'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you having trouble articulating your strategic objectives? Not sure if your program investments are aligned to your strategic vision? Wondering why your six, seven, and eight-figure program investments seem to evaporate into thin air, even as your business teams are left to add more people, take on more risk, and take heat from unhappy customers? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich can help ensure that your strategic objectives translate into sustainable, successful investments. For more information, visit our website at tacticalstrategygroup.com. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at Voice AM Business. Again, that's at Voice AM Business. And stay current. Your organization is spending seven, eight, or even nine figures annually on transformation programs. And you're questioning the bottom line business value. You were told not to worry. We've engaged the best system integrators and they said all is well. Has your IT organization become a black box where money goes in, but nothing comes out? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich has seen every side of this story, from upfront happy talk to painful post-mortems. Find out what's really going on. Visit tacticalstrategygroup.com and ask about TSG's Transformation Oversight Service. Comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to the North Star. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to WMMulrich at TSGConsultingInc.com. That's WMMulrich at TSGConsultingInc.com. 
Now, back to the North Star. Here again is William Ulrich. Welcome back to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich. You can reach me on LinkedIn email or by, at my website. We're discussing the circular economy with my guest, Walter Stahill. Walter, before the break, we were talking about motivations with corporations, and I think you put some good ideas out there on why organizations should really think seriously about this. Uh, in the terms of governments, uh, government institutions, what have you seen in terms of support for the circular economy? And I'm guessing it varies widely, but just some general thoughts there. Well, governments are directly concerned because after the life of a product, end of pipe, it becomes liability of the government or municipalities and resource managers. So one elegant way for governments is to define waste as a product or an object material without a positive value and without a liable owner. So to overcome this problem, to get rid of this end of pipe liability, governments can either put um, deposits on goods and materials, or they can legislate the ultimate liable owner, which is normally the producer, to take back everything and pay for the uh, disposal. Now, if governments do this, then the linear industrial economy will very quickly change towards a performance economy that because if you have to take the stuff back anyway, you might as well sell the use of the objects and not the objects. Hmm. Okay. And, and individuals, can, can individual people make a difference when they, when they look at what they're buying or some other kinds of things out there? Well, basically, the, we already buy many products as a service without realizing that we are in the performance economy. Think of hotel rooms, public transport, objects for rent or lease, taxes, rental buildings and offices, apartments. Uh, all these things are used by individuals and, and corporate clients. Then you have other things such as textile leasing, uniforms, for example, Rolls-Royce, powered by the hour, Michelin, tire use by the mile. These are really business to business. But as a user, as a individual, we already participate a lot in this shared use, uh, either one by one or common uh, use. Probably more, but, but we don't realize that this is different from buying goods and getting rid of it afterwards. So you and I had some conversations recently about some of the examples out there in the manufacturing and construction fields. I, I think you had some some stories you were you were telling me on some successful pilot efforts that that gave some some excellent returns on on some of the concepts we're talking about today. Uh, did you want to talk about a couple of those or some of those? Well, the, the important thing is to realize there was a watershed with the Anthropocene uh, 1946 when 
most materials used are man-made or synthetic materials and no longer natural materials. But society neglected the fact that these man-made materials impose a man-made uh, liability or responsibility. But now we are landed with this legacy waste from the Anthropocene, such as plastics in the ocean. Um, and we have to develop technologies to make the best to recover, basically, the atoms and molecules of these materials. So we have to learn to de-link materials, to delaminate, depolymerize, and to deconstruct buildings. Now, these are activities which are global innovation driven by universities, companies, and if we don't do it, somebody else will do it. So we are in a global competition scenario. But that's one side. The other side is how can we prevent for these legacy ways to arise further in the future? And that is where the really great innovative, destructive innovation will come in, uh, in the future producing circular sciences at universities, producing circular energies such as hydrogen, circular chemistry, circular metallurgy, synthetic biology. And interesting is that in this field, some US uh, research laboratories, especially in the PDKs, the circular chemistry, the Brett Helms at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory is uh, probably one of the most advanced, producing new monomers that use less energy, less water, and can be fully reused. But you also have the, the carbon capture and utilization. In other words, capture carbon emissions and use them in a way that you can replace the petrochemicals by a carbon chemicals. And one of the leaders in that is the University of Michigan. So these innovative drives are happening in most countries of the world. And some are very prominent in the US, but normally we don't hear about this or the economic actors don't see how they can profit from it. Mm. What we, I think there's a adoption curve here, and I'm glad you brought up some of these uh, low-level sort of concepts of reclamation. You wrote about in the book that there's an era of R and then there's an era of D. And I think you talked about those potentially being as uh, uh, sitting on a curve of, of potential reuse or reclamation. Can, can you talk a little bit about the era of R and, and how, it, how it differs from the era of D? Well, the era of R is, think of reuse, refill, repair, remanufacture, reprogram. And again, the... Think of friend to wreck. 
in the US as a company that rents used vehicles at a lower price. But now the new, a new business is also uh, farming equipment such as John Deere tractors without electronics. So 20 year old equipment that suddenly fetches very high prices at auctions. Because if you are a farmer in a faraway place, you want your local mechanic to be able to repair your equipment. And that is only possible if the equipment has no electronics. So there are, think of ISO shipping containers, another American invention that has, is basically a very solid, reusable element, standardized, that is used worldwide and is normally leased or rented, uh, not owned by or owned by fleet managers. So the, the area of R is very prominent. And the big advantage for policymakers is that as long as these objects or infrastructures are used, they maintain these embodied resources, water, CO2 emissions, electricity. And if we want to reduce our resource consumption, then maintaining these embodied resources is one of the really intelligent strategies. And then when you talk about the era of D, I think we're talking about some of the more advanced things you were, you were talking about previously. Uh, some of the terms you use are de-alloy, delaminate, devulcanize, decode, depolymerize, uh, deconstruct. So we're talking now more at the molecule level. Is that a fair statement? That's correct, yeah. And we are talking about the global technology, global industry. The area of R is local. You have to repair products where they are. Uh, so you have to provide repair workshops, repair craftsmen going to the building or the equipment that needs repair. The area of D is uh, shared throughout the world in order to uh, delaminate, for example, windmill blades. Whoever comes up with a technology to delaminate these carbon fiber laminates has a huge market if he can uh, protect his intellectual property for this technology. So the, if you look at innovation and money, then this, these delinking technologies uh, of the area of D, which we mostly are, don't have yet, offer a great uh, global market. So one of the, while there is good work going on, it sounds like in a lot of labs and, and maybe some people hold, some organizations hold some patents on some of these things, I would, I would imagine. It, the, these, these organizations that invest in these technologies could see significant payback over time because this era of R and, and more importantly, I think, or just as important, the era of D is going to become more pronounced over time. And I think even, even more critical as resources, especially things like precious metals or inaccessible metals. We, we talked a little bit about uh, in one of our phone calls about uh, the inaccessibility of certain metals. 
Not, not maybe because they're not on, on the planet somewhere, but maybe there's reasons why we can't get to them, geopolitical or other reasons. Is, is, that, uh, is that a fair statement? Absolutely. The, we have to realize that the area of the delinking materials has a limited uh, scope, simply because take a smartphone. In a smartphone, you have 72 chemical elements out of, I think, 114 on the periodic table. Now, there is no way that we can recover these 72 chemicals. We may be able to recover six or seven, gold and silver, copper, always the same uh, suspects. Uh, but if we reuse the components, then we, we save, we preserve all these 72 elements. So one trick is if you cannot make money by reusing the atoms, then go back one step and reuse the components. Uh, but now the important thing is these, if the, these uh, smartphones have been sold, they are in the ownership of individuals. And if you want it back, you probably will have to pay because you may not be the only one that wants them back. So therefore, once we really get into a situation of scarcity, I think a lot of companies will realize if they rent or lease their products, then they will never have this moment of panic because they still own all the assets and materials which they need. They simply have to recall them for reuse. One of the things you talked about with a pilot effort, and I think it involved more of the era of R uh, types of concepts. I think you mentioned a, a story about Caterpillar and a pilot effort that they did at one point in time and some of the value they got. Which company? Caterpillar. Did we oh, talk yeah. about Caterp that? Yes. Ca Caterpillar was in the early 1990s uh, forced into remanufacturing diesel engines by one of its big clients, I think it was GM. And they were first reluctant to do it. They did a pilot and then they learned, for example, that you it's a problem of caring and value. So if you need to course the broken engines back, but if you simply ask people to return these engines and in return, they get a reman engine at the, re at the debate, at the discount, then uh, you are in competition with many other independent remanufacturers. However, if you sell the reman engine and the new engines at the same price because they have the same performance, but you offer up to 40% of the sales price for any diesel engine that comes back without additional damage uh, with all the aggregates, then you, you retain your customer, you retain the market, and you can convince your customers that they don't have to worry about if something is new or remanufactured. It's the same quality, the same performance. And actually, uh, Caterpillar was the first company to be allowed to remanufacture products in the People's Republic of China 
because they, the Chinese, like most developing nations, were very suspicious about remanufactured second quality. And Caterpillar could prove that you can remanufacturing leads to products that are as good as new or even better than new because there are some advantages such as aging of materials that actually give a, a reman, remanufactured engine a better, a longer life and a better quality than a new engine block uh, that has never been used. And I think you said that they were surprised at the, at the returns that they got? Yes, and then the, the financial people at Caterpillar were very, not very pleased with, with this because if you remanufacture a large number of objects you produce, then you reduce the economy of scale in your manufacturing units, the number of units sold. So they got a consultant to calculate the return on investment. And I think they were the first to realize, to their astonishment, that the ROI on the remanufacturing plants of these engines was five times the ROI on the manufacturing plants. So they weren't assuming they were going to get these. They were actually assuming that they were going to not be very successful financially, and they ended up, it ended up being the opposite. Yes, because the, if you are an actor in the linear industrial economy, you really have no clue about what the other economy after the point of sale and how you could make more money there. That's a great, that's a great story. Um, we're going to pick on this up after break. You're listening to The North Star. I'm William Ulrich. We're discussing the circular economy with my guest, Walter Stahill, today. His latest book is called The Circular Economy, A User Guide. You can contact him on LinkedIn. We'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Your organization is spending seven, eight, or even nine figures annually on transformation programs. And you're questioning the bottom line business value. You were told not to worry. We've engaged the best system integrators and they said all is well. Has your IT organization become a black box where money goes in, but nothing comes out? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich has seen every side of this story, from upfront happy talk to painful post-mortems. Find out what's really going on. Visit tacticalstrategygroup.com and ask about TSG's Transformation Oversight Service. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Are you having trouble articulating your strategic objectives? Not sure if your program investments are aligned to your strategic vision? Wondering why your six, seven, and eight-figure program investments seem to evaporate into thin air, even as your business teams are left to add more people, take on more risk, and take heat from unhappy customers? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich can help ensure that your strategic objectives translate into sustainable, successful investments. 
For more information, visit our website at tacticalstrategygroup.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to the North Star. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to wmmulrich at tsgconsultinginc.com. That's wmmulrich at tsgconsultinginc.com. Now, back to the North Star. Here again is William Ulrich. Welcome back to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich. You can reach me on LinkedIn, email, or at my website. We're discussing the circular economy today with my guest, Walter Stahill. Uh, Walter, we were talking over break about a couple of other examples. I had mentioned, uh, well, you had mentioned to me, IKEA. Uh, Can you uh, talk about that one as, as well for a minute? Well, IKEA is obviously a furniture sales organization, used to be, and IKEA wants to be wants to become more sustainable, more resource efficient. So they have started a few years back, first in Switzerland, to take back certain uh, objects, certain pieces of furniture, uh, remanufacture them, basically clean them, repaint them, and sell them again in their second life stores. But today, I believe they, they have second life stores in all countries worldwide. And they are very satisfied because they have realized that they can make uh, basically the same revenue, uh, but with much less expenses for to buy resources and, and, and shipping costs. It's another good lesson. And I think the, one of the other ones we talked about is, is Xerox. Well, Xerox was probably the first company that used <coughs> changed their business model to selling customer satisfaction in the early 1990s because they realized that they could by having a component standardization for all their components they could reuse uh, components it's like a lego you take the your used equipment back from the market you either upgrade it technologically or you dismantle it and reuse the single components for new equipment. And they really perfectioned this uh, design and uh, marketing strategy. Another company in the US was Kodak with the single-use cameras. Single-use cameras had a very bad reputation in Europe because we don't, we hate, disposable items, but people never thought, they never used their brains to think, well, I give my single-use camera back to a laboratory. And what the laboratory did, it was, it sold them back to Eastman Kodak and Eastman Kodak took them apart and put new color films in and sold it again as single-use camera up to 12 times. Now, the, the like the ROI in remanufacturing, the astonishing idea 
experience of seeing uh, Eastman Kodak was they realized that in order to refill these cameras, you have to do it by hand. You cannot use machines as in the new production. And the people doing this refill, putting a new film in, color film, have to work in absolute darkness, which of course for most of us is difficult to support. And then they started employing blind people. Those blind people are always in dark and they are normally very good with their hands. And so suddenly remanufacturing the single use cameras became a very high social enterprise using highly skilled people, blind people in well-paid jobs, which wow. you didn't have in manufacturing. That's, that's a great story. Uh, I think there's a lot of examples out there and people just don't realize. I did not know about that, about the re single-use cameras. I had no idea. I thought people just threw them away. So that, that's, that's great. I do want if to talk. You throw, yeah. If you throw them away, you don't get your pictures. You don't get your pictures out, do you? Uh, so that, that's a great story. Let's go back to the uh, public sector and the motivations that, that they can do in terms of uh, either innovation, driving innovation or driving incentives around, around the circular economy. And I think the, the more governments realize the opportunities here, the more they could potentially see their economies perform uh, a bit better. But you wanted to talk about that as well. Well, one of the first uh, public procurement offices that realized the that instead of specifying products to, to every detail, they should specify the performance they want. And NASA was probably the first one after or during the, the late period of the space shuttles, they decided that it's not NASA's uh, objective to operate, own and operate hardware. What they really wanted was space transport to the International Space Station or wherever. And so they announced on their procurement website that they will in future buy, prefer to buy services rather than hardware. And that was picked up by people like Elon Musk and uh, the, the chap from uh, the owner of Amazon who yeah seized the occasion to produce space transport. I mean, uh, SpaceX and the Falcon rocket of Elon Musk are probably the most, the best known example. And if they looked at this from a purely money profit point of view, they realized that if you can make a reusable rocket, you make more money for each flight than if you have to produce new rockets all the time. So the big challenge was to develop a rocket that can land on the pad where it took off. And this is the, uh, the big advantage of Origin, Blue Origin, I think is the other company by the owner of Amazon and SpaceX, that they have developed a reusable space technology. And so therefore, NASA now is no longer buying hardware, they're buying 
what they need is space transport. But this has led to a huge drive into uh, innovative systems thinking. Because normally, manufacturers think in production processes. If you are selling something like space transport and you want to make the most money, you have to think in, in the whole systems. And then you discover that this systems performance design is something that doesn't exist in manufacturing. And so it's again a new quality, a new uh, business area that you can, of course, apply to also to infrastructure. There are many bridges and tunnels that were built this way without the public spending any money. The Euro Eurostar tunnel, the channel tunnel between England and France, the many bridges in, uh, in Korea or in Scotland or in France were built by giving the, uh, uh, making a tender that you, you want somebody to build, finance and exploit and manage this infrastructure for 75 years. And in exchange, he gets a toll. That's all he gets. And then it's very quickly, the construction companies realized, well, okay, that means you have to design a bridge so that it lasts for 75 years with minimum maintenance. Because that's the best way to make money. You don't want to, you only get the tolls, so you don't want any expenses. And so again, it's a systems design exercise involving financial design, structure, material experts with it, uh, the objective to optimize your profits through innovation. So we're talking about companies changing their, their basic business models here and, and, and governments, right? You may, the NASA example is an excellent example. That, that's a change in their business model from a, a more of a manufacturing to a, a, a leasing and, and licensing type of transportation model. So we're, we're really looking at organizations across the board who have to rethink their current business models. It doesn't mean they're going to abandon them, but it does mean that there's new business models that they can explore, which have financial benefit to that. Yes. And the, there is a difference between the US and Europe, because in the US, you really use these private finance initiatives. The state only says performance he wants. Whereas in Europe, we don't really trust the industry and we prefer these private-public partnerships, but which often ends in a disaster because then both partners try to say what has to be done and how it has to be done. Um, another example is the Pentagon. The Pentagon today, today uh, leases or rents helicopters and ships and tanks, uh, but the management of these assets is a fleet manager who is not the army or the navy. And one of the striking examples was when the Pentagon asked for, a, gave a 10-year contract for tires, tires for all vehicles, aircraft, everything. And uh, this is the, the Michelin 
tire company, the French Michelin company, was in those days looking for businesses because their business was declining. And they took, they got this contract for, I think, $10 billion or something for 10 years. And they realized there is no way to make money by using, by replacing tires when they are, when they are punctured or need retreading. And so then they developed mobile workshops that follow the troops that go around uh, the depots and they repair punctures. They take tires for retreading, putting a new tread on. And then the feedback was that Michelin should produce tires that can do many more miles because then they would make more money from the rental income than by, by selling uh, new tires that could only be one, used once. So I, again, yeah. it's money is the, the driver of business, but you have to think there are many different ways to make money. That, 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 that's really excellent. I, I'm, I'm glad you, you brought up a lot of those innovative ideas and, and the financial motivations here, which a lot of people still sort of don't understand or skip over. So where do you see progress going in the next uh, five to 10 years on this as we're wrapping up today? I think the biggest uh, opportunities for, for business are in what I call the circular sciences of circular energy circular chemistry, circular metallurgy, even synthetic uh, biology, biofuels, because these are global markets that are open to anybody uh, with ideas, but it needs multidisciplinary innovation in systems, materials, and components. So you need you have to break out of your scientific silos and you have to have teams that normally would never work together because you need chemists and physicists and biologists all working on the same uh, objective, coming up with really disruptive new technologies. Great messaging today, Walter. We've been discussing the circular economy. I'm hoping to have this uh, follow-up at some point. Uh, my uh, I want to thank Walter for uh, his insights. His book is A Circular Economy, A User's Guide. My guest next week will be Jim Johnson of the Standish Group talking about project successes and failures and what we can learn. You've been listening to The North Star. I'm your host, William Ulrich. You can contact me by email, LinkedIn, or on my website. I want to thank you for joining me today, and I'll talk to you all next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to the North Star. Please join host William Ulrich for another edition of the program next Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll continue our discussion on strategy execution then.